Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about beliefs. What do I believe? The criticisms last week were based on an assumption that the Bible is true. I didn't get into any concept that might reflect a disbelief in the Bible, and we're going to find out a little bit more about why I took that approach today. The problem I have in the poem chapter and verse is misinterpretation, even bending scripture out of what it truly means into something it doesn't mean for perhaps a political purpose. I'm going to use the same approach today, though, when it comes to assuming first and foremost that what the Bible says is true. Why I specifically believe that is probably a separate show, and maybe I'll go there someday. But for now, I'm going to give the fairness of treating both the things that I quarrel with and the things that I agree with from a belief perspective the same standing. That the Bible was written to describe events that actually happened and was a faith-inspired journey both for the people who lived those experiences and the people who recorded them and the people, even a couple hundred years later, who gathered them together, protected and preserved them and handed them down to where we are today. I'm not going to get into the journey right now, but I wanted to clear that up right away. My belief system is going to be biblically orthodox. So to that end, where will I begin with a uh, what-do-I-believe topic? Well, I might as well start with Scripture. All of it is going to be Old Testament. In fact, all of it Hebrew prophecy. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 33, and Ezekiel 36, verses 26 to 28, with perhaps a little mention of verse 25. We'll see how it goes. Here's the scripture. The Lord says, The time is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Although I was like a husband to them, they did not keep that covenant. The new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel will be this. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. Jeremiah chapter 31. Here's Ezekiel, which actually is preceded by the concept of the Lord sprinkling people clean of their idolatry, uh, use of water to wash away sin, but really not, not just a reference to what we might later call baptism, but a reference to baptism by sprinkling and not necessarily baptism by immersion or heading down to the river or anything of that nature. I will give you a new heart and a new mind. I will take away your stubborn heart of stone and give you an obedient heart. I will put my spirit in you and will see to it that you will follow my laws and keep all the commands I have given you. Then you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people, and I will be your God. Ezekiel chapter 36. Could I have found comparable passages in the New Testament? Most likely. I don't know for sure that I could have found comparable passages in the Quran. I, I didn't look. But the main reason I wanted to go to the Old Testament was to drive home how old these ideas are about the idea of having a holy living spirit living within you and about a covenant between man and creator. So in this case, I, I wanted to go back to the oldest 
uh, at least my favorite, oldest documents, to suggest that anyone can believe as I do. I'm not going to express any ideas here that are unique to me. I'm not holding myself up as anybody who has any special knowledge or who has any special experience. The Bible says these words are written in our hearts. And to speak in more modern ways, this is part of what we might call the collective unconscious. One Sunday last year, my pastor asked if any of the uh, people in the congregation that particular Sunday had a mission statement, a personal mission statement. I was one of the very few to raise my hand that day. Do you have a mission statement in your life? Or are you perhaps more casual about the things that you believe or the role that you feel that you're playing? Most of us, if we work in a corporate environment, have a mission statement and a vision statement and strategic objectives. And, you know, sometimes I worry that you spend as much time developing the strategy that you don't have much time left over to actually implement the strategy. And there's a certain amount of value to keeping it simple. The latest HR movement in mission statements is to keep them very, very tight, very simple, very short. But mine goes back about a decade or so now. And so it's, it's a little bit longer, but I will share it with you goes something like this. To share the truth and power of faith, family, fidelity, and friendship through example, service, speech, and writing. It's very consistent with what we might call a John Wesley kind of point of view, a Wesleyan concept. Uh, let me read that again. The mission would be to share the truth and power of faith, family, fidelity, and friendship through example, service, speech, and writing. To me, the order is important. Faith comes first, followed very quickly by family. I don't know how well you keep a family together, frankly, without fidelity. And friendship, although last, made this pantheon, and I would not have put together a list of, uh, of important things to share without that. And the methods, also very important. Example, coming first. Service. Example might be what people watch you do. Service might be what you intentionally do for people to see, you know, ways that you reach out to people, whereas example doesn't necessarily have to do with outreach. You set an example even when you try not to or even when you don't think you are. Finally, then later, speech and writing. So the idea that you, the, things that, the things that I may put pen to paper on, less important than the things I say, less important than the things that I intentionally do, and even that is less important than merely the way I live or the way I try to live my life. There's an old saying that says, share the gospel at all times, but only when necessary, use words. I'm hoping that mission statement is consistent with that and kind of providing a focus, giving a framing for my beliefs. In this case, though, due to the nature of the podcast format, I'm not going to have any uh, alternative but to use words. If I'm going to say what I believe, I'm going to have to use words. So the bottom line here is this. I believe there are some permanent things. Osganess, in his book, Time for Truth, uses these words to describe the concept of permanent things on uh, you know, pages 79 and 80 of the hardback edition. Let me see if I can pick up from there. Truth, guaranteed by God, is quite different. Created by God, not us, it is partly discovered and partly disclosed. It is singular, truth, not plural, truths. Certain, not doubtful. Absolute and unconditional, not relative, and grounded in God's infinite knowing, not in our tiny capacity to know anything. As Jean-Paul Sartre acknowledged 
in words that faith is happy to reverse. There can be no eternal truth if there is no eternal and perfect consciousness to think it. With such a rock-like view of truth, the Christian faith is not true because it works. It works because it is true. It is not true because we experience it. We experience it deeply and gloriously because it is true. It is not simply true for us. It is true for any who seek in order to find. Because truth is true even if nobody believes it. And falsehood is false even if everybody believes it. That is why truth does not yield to opinion, fashion, numbers, office, or sincerity. It is simply true. And that is the end of it. It is one of the permanent things. All that and a great deal more hang on the issue of truth. Those are the words of Oz Ganes. So when it comes to defining belief, I'll approach it this way. What are some of the permanent things? Well, there are three arguments in apologetics, for which I'll provide some details later. Let me list them, and then try to kind of riff off them, kind of improvise off them a little bit. A. Creation. Our world came from something, and not nothing. Or more to the point, our world came from someone. B. Jesus Christ, as the Son of God, lived the perfect life. C. Jesus Christ was crucified, resurrected, and will return again. The whole concept of Eucharist, Communion, or the Lord's Supper, all three terms referring to the same thing, speak those concepts to believers, at least those believers who take the sacraments. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. This is actually part of the Roman Catholic liturgy, and it may be my favorite part of the entire communion liturgy. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. For me, starting as far back as college, or maybe even the last year of high school, I morphed those words into a prayer. What I sometimes hear people refer to as breath prayers, very quick, easy, uh, under your breath, or with only one uh, intake of oxygen can be prayed. Not quite a chant, not intended to be a chant, but that, uh, that quick and that specific. I morphed that same concept into, I have loved, I do love, I will love. More on that later, perhaps even in this discussion of beliefs, certainly more on that later in a future program. So how do my core beliefs about God fit in with these pillars of apologia, these defenses of the faith, these, this notion of apologetics? Well, first off, creation. I accept the notion of necessary being. This is one of the things that I picked up by studying philosophy of religion at a university level. But um, to simplify it as much as I can, necessary being has a couple of facets. One is descriptive, that God is all-knowing, all-seeing, always present, all-powerful, and fully good, and as such, beyond our comprehension. So good in ways that we can't comprehend when we're dealing with the problems of evil and pain, and knowledgeable in ways that are beyond our comprehension. So the somewhat childish notion that if God is all-powerful, can he create a rock so big he can't lift it, whether, whether or not it disproves the possibility of omnipotence, certainly demonstrates the the likelihood of omniscience, because there is an answer to that question, even the, even though it's beyond our ability to comprehend. So these are the qualities that you hear described in terms of necessary being. 
the other thing with uh, the notion of necessary being is that it's kind of this concept that God's existence is necessary for my existence. In other words, I can account for causes and effects going all the way back as far as our science will trace to perhaps the Big Bang, perhaps the beginning of all known things. But when you get to that point of not knowing what the unknown things are, knowing that there perhaps was a Big Bang, but not knowing what banged, for want of a better word, you get to this point of either nothing being the creative force behind all things we see, or something being the creative force behind all things we see. And if we encounter something that appears to have personality, that has character, and if you believe that that something has actually manifested itself in human form and interacted with us in a way that was eyewitnessed and recorded, then it makes sense to start talking about it as a someone rather than a something, which is why necessary being could be a force, could be a uh, some sort of a naturalistic principle, but it seems highly unlikely to me that that would be the case because you'd have to go back to the point before anything naturalistic actually existed, or at least anything that we've measured as naturalistic actually existed. Perhaps it's metaphysical. Perhaps there is a certain leap of faith, there's certainly a leap of faith, involved in trying to account for things that happened before there were things to measure what has happened. But the concept of necessary being is exactly that, that essentially you either, from a philosophical perspective, have to continue to go back with unidentified yet perceived causes and effects infinitely, what um, some of the philosophers have called an infinite causal regression, that before the Big Bang, something caused the Big Bang, but whatever that was had to have been caused too, and whatever that was had to have been caused too, and you never get to the point of a first cause. Necessary being is precisely the idea that there is a first cause, and that first cause is not in and of the universe, it's inherently outside the universe. Now, last week I mentioned that you know, there are some things about the writings of C.S. Lewis that I find um, very interesting, provocative, and persuasive, and there's some things that you know, I find less interesting, less persuasive, and how he deals with origins is really right in the middle of that. So if you were actually to pick up the uh, the book Mere Christianity and jump to the theology section near the end and try to peg the points in that little section of the book where he talks about questions of origin, I think you're really meeting me at the crossroads between the things I like about his perspective and the things that I don't. But necessary being far precedes any concept that C.S. Lewis might have introduced. Uh, it goes really back even and in deep into the Middle Ages. Okay, the next concept, uh, core belief, Jesus. Jesus Christ is who he said he was. And one of the major issues that I've got is whenever people who apparently have never read the Bible, or at least have never even gotten six, seven, eight chapters into the book of Romans, suggest that um, Christians didn't believe that Jesus was God until 200 years later, that Jesus Christ himself never introduced himself as God, that the whole notion of deity was imposed after the fact. Because there is a certain stretch of imagination you have to impose to suggest that with all the, uh, all the accounts of Jesus, written not just by believers, but also by historians, including Jewish historians and Roman historians, it seems highly unlikely that there never was such a person. Again, you have this, this notion of infinite causal regression moving back in time, well, what about the notion of the cause and effects moving forward in time? It's a little bit hard to explain the church as we know it today without having some event, perhaps, I don't know, 2,000 years ago, maybe in a location like Palestine, 
where a uniquely remarkable man did some uniquely remarkable things. You know, at least that explanation is persuasive enough for me from this particular perspective that I'm willing to grant that Jesus is who he said he was. Think about the grace we offer to fictional protagonists. We should offer the same kinds of grace to historical figures. The grace of letting them be who they say they were. Unless they're not protagonists after all, unless they're unreliable or, or an antagonist of some sort. But if the, uh, if the evidence supports it, or at least if the evidence doesn't affirmatively deny or contradict the claim, we should allow Jesus Christ to be who he said. And we probably should trust his followers at least a certain way down the road, particularly because of all the different you know, external factors. Laying down their life for what they believed, um, being a credible force and providing a movement that persuaded others to document the movement from the outside in. Third, the Holy Spirit. There is more going on in this life than what I can measure. There are principles that I really enjoy from John Eldridge's book, Epic. John Eldridge is a Christian counselor focusing on, you know, to a certain degree on marriage, but a lot on on men's counseling. A lot of what he does is focus on the weakest link in the church today. And the weakest link in the church today is obviously not kids. If you've got a healthy, well-balanced church to go to, you're going to see a lot of very, very young kids, and you're going to see a lot of youth. Um, you're going to see a lot of very old people, and you're going to be missing a lot of those, those ages in between. But if you do encounter some 20-somethings and 30-somethings who are actively involved in the church, guess what? More likely to be women than men. Now, it's unfair to talk about the senior citizens in that regard, because on average, I suppose your, your, uh, your average woman has a 9- or 10-year expectation to live longer than her husband. You're more likely to find a widow than a widower. But it's still pretty striking when you look at the gender makeup of your average Protestant Christian church in America, how strongly the numbers tilt toward women. And John Eldridge's ministry is all about reaching out, reaching out and speaking to men in ways that you know, men frankly haven't been spoken to in the church in hundreds, if not thousands of years. Here's how Eldridge describes this notion that there is more going on than meets the eye, that there is a spiritual realm. And the, the most important figure in the spiritual realm is the Holy Spirit, described not only in the New Testament at length by Jesus in the last few chapters of John's Gospel, but also in the two Old Testament prophecies that I shared today. Here's what John Eldridge says. First, things are not what they seem. Second, we are at war in that other reality. And third, you have a crucial role to play. He calls his book epic precisely because He's trying to make the analogy that things like substitutionary atonement are not anathema. They're not a foreign concept. They're not in any way offensive or strange or unnatural or superstitious or odd. If you look at the art that we have, even both the good art, um, things that I would cite like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, or the really cheesy kind of hokey art like the movie Titanic, you have either actual, real substitutionary atonement happening, the whole Jack storyline in Titanic, or you at least have the genuine, intentional offer of substitutionary atonement in things like the way Gandalf behaves and the way Frodo behaves in the Lord of the Rings series. But frankly, that's just the tip of the iceberg. If I wanted to try to be persuasive here, if I was making an apologetic argument, I would go on and on and on. But this isn't about what I want anyone else to believe. This is simply me saying what I believe. And if you think about the words that Frodo heard from Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings, this is the analogy that John Eldridge brings forward in his book, 
epic. It's not unlike the words that a lot of Christians believe the Holy Spirit has spoken to them. There is a lot more going on in this story than what it is you can see. You know, you're getting up, having breakfast, taking a shower, driving to work is not the whole story. In that other story, there is at the very least a very aggressive game of tug of war going on. You know, even people who got it wrong, in my mind, like the Gnostics, with their notions of duality, recognize that there's more going on here than what we see in a day-to-day basis. And just because I don't have the eyes to see it doesn't mean it's not real. And uh, John Eldridge describes this as a, as a reality at war, as a, as a realm of warfare. And you have a crucial role to play. Hi there, this is Rick Moyer, the host of the Take Him With You weekly podcast. My wife Amy and I talk every week about all sorts of cool geeky things going on around our house. Plus, we have some uh, positive words of encouragement and then a subject every week that is sure to uh, make you think a little bit and hopefully encourage you for the week to come. That's our goal. Visit us at TakeHimWithYou.com. You can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Take Him With You. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Thanks. Okay, let me connect that uh, and return to this idea that I said I'd come back to of I have loved, I do love, I will love. This notion that there's things that go before, things that are in the past, things that are you know true now or have an immediacy to them, but also a commitment toward the future. So this notion that... Um, Christ came and lived among us, that he was uh, crucified, resurrected, and ascended in heaven, and that he will come again. Okay, Well, where does all this come from? Well, it comes from my heart. So it is mine in that respect. When I talked about the Holy Spirit before on the Pentecost episode, number 12, I believe, I asked what we mean by heart. What do we mean when we say have a heart? It's the Christian idea that there's a heart and head distinction to be made. Well, like it or not, it's probably a very religious concept that we all take for granted a little bit more than we should. This comes from the notion of Christ dying, rising, and returning. Past, present, and future. The past, present, and future of God's love. So, let's get into the more, perhaps actively evangelical concepts, not so much statements of faith. Did Jesus Christ die for us? Us. You know what? My belief in that is not as clear as you may guess. I believe that Christ died for me, for my sins. I also believe that he was, you know, intended to die for everyone else. So for you and for your sins. But it's not as simple as all that, is it? All I know is that Jesus Christ died for me. How can I profess to know the answer to the question if it's broader than that? My hope is that everyone recognizes this same truth in her or his life, But it's only when each one of us acknowledges the role Christ has played in our lives that the first statement actually becomes true. Part of the reason I'm convinced that Christ died for me is my acceptance of his gift of grace. I have no doubt that Christ intended to die for you, whoever you may be. But has a gift rejected truly been exchanged? Notice the difference between me and the televangelists, or what I call the politically active Christians. I can do nothing and will do nothing to force an answer on you, or to you, or for you. It is your question. It's true for each of us. And for me, I acknowledge the question, did Jesus Christ die for my sins? I've got an answer to that. 
but you're going to have to have your own answer to that question. And in my mind, it is perfectly acceptable within our relationship if you answer that question any way you want, as long as your answer is genuine and true. Let me word it this way. I cannot give you my faith. I can only give you my love. David Winter has a quote. I'm hoping I'm quoting it properly. I've heard it so many times I take it for granted. But here's how it goes. Those who receive your love today will be much more interested in your faith tomorrow. That sounds just a touch too strategic for my liking. But the concept is, those who experience your love are much more open to your faith, or perhaps much more tolerant of your faith. I mentioned earlier that many people who think like me believe that truth is one of the permanent things, the things that this world is made of. Well, you know what? So is love. Love is another one of the permanent things. Perhaps it's a permanent thing that most of us are a little bit more willing to acknowledge than truth. I'll leave you to wrestle with that on your own. So how do I connect the dots between the last show and this one? How do I intersect between what I do believe and what I don't believe? In order to address that topic, I'm going to need to introduce our different drummer this week. I'll introduce the different drummer this week, but I'll do so with one more statement of belief. And uh, this is the honest truth. It's uh, exactly what's delayed me in having this episode out a little bit later than I intended. I wanted the, uh, the last one and this one to be pretty close together, kind of bookends. But I didn't really know what I wanted to do with a different drummer. I had picked the different drummer for this episode months ago. And one of the initial uh, things that I wanted to talk about and one of the initial different drummers I wanted to have right there with me, kind of standing up and supporting me when I talked about things I believe, especially when it comes to truth. And we'll, I'll hold on to the different drummer I had planned for this one and use him some other time because I think he's well worth citing. Instead, I just had this sense, and as a Christian, I don't know any other way to word it, that the Holy Spirit was telling me, you're going to need to make a change. You cannot go with the original plan. Your different drummer needs to be somebody else than what you originally thought to do. And to me, it's that difference between human wisdom saying, I made a plan, I'm going to stick with it. And not in this case, actually having the advice of friends saying, hey, you might want to switch this around or have you thought of this or have you thought of that? This was literally just me in my time of reflection and in my time of prayer trying to get ready to do this particular episode, which even though it's easy for me because I'm just talking about what I believe, is a little bit trickier because I really wanted to get it right. I wanted to be able to say exactly what I wanted to say. And to get this done, I really had to go and look to a different drummer than the one I originally had in mind. And that's what I'm going to go with, a man named Dr. Larry Crabb. Larry Crabb, I think, was mentioned on the episode about fathers, because that's how I encountered him. A great friend of mine at work, somebody that I have a great deal of uh, affection for, had given me a book called The Silence of Adam. And in that book, it was the whole idea of, hey, you know, if you're really, you know, wanting to look specifically to the father-son relationship, not just in this human life, you know, the actual real father-son thing, but also to connect that with what Scripture says and what our relationship with God's all about, he gave the book to me, recommended it, and I must have read that thing in less than a day. I am not a fast reader. I tend to describe myself as a thorough reader, and I probably give myself even too much credit there. But I read it, I read it that quickly. So I want to give Larry Crabb the last word, but before I do, I jumped over to get a little biographical information because I wasn't really ready. 
this is not the person I intended to talk about when it comes to the, the concept of beliefs and who a really great different drummer is. But obviously, when I looked online, I found that you know, Larry Crabb's a pretty good different drummer. So let me kind of talk a little bit about him, just from a biographical perspective, and talk about his uh, ministry, which is the New Way Ministries. Let me begin with New Way Ministries, in fact, because on their website, um, www.newwayministries.org, they actually have a faith statement. And this faith statement is not inconsistent with what I might be able to sign up to from a perspective of belief. I didn't want to do this as a creed. I didn't want to offer the Apostles' Creed, which is the one I would offer. If you've seen the movie Easy Rider and the church scenes shot in New Orleans, the uh, recitation over that is the Apostles' Creed. But you're going to find that the creed that they've got here on their website is pretty similar to the Apostles' Creed. And for that reason, I'm not going to read it to you, because I don't think that it's right to take this particular show and talk about it from the perspective of what a creed is. A creed is what someone else says um, they believe and that they think that all Christians should believe, and me saying, yeah, I agree with that. That's very different from me telling you what I believe. Me telling you what I believe is not necessarily um, my, my signature on the bottom of, of a creed written by someone else. But I will share the new, the new Way Ministries statement of faith, just because I think it is another unique set of belief statements, and again, belief statements that I think I'm, a set of belief statements that I'm right in line with. We believe in one God, creator and Lord of the universe. We believe that Jesus Christ, God's Son, was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary atoning death on the cross, rose bodily from the dead, and ascended into heaven, where, as truly God and truly man, he is the mediator between God and man. Hey, I did read that whole one. Sorry about that. Too much detail. We believe that the Bible is God's authoritative and inspired word. We believe that all people are lost sinners and cannot enter the kingdom of God except through the new birth. So uh, the concept of justification through Christ alone is there, and that's very consistent with things Paul said in the book of Romans. I'm very comfortable with that. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. So belief in the church, I'm on board with that. Uh, maybe closer to Christmas time, I'll talk a little bit more about the church and about worship. We believe in the necessity of the work of the Holy Spirit for the individual's new birth and growth to maturity and for Christ's constant renewal in truth, wisdom, faith, holiness, love, power, and mission. Wow, it's a mouthful. I, they had me at Holy Spirit. And finally, we believe that Jesus Christ will personally and visibly return um, in glory to raise the dead and bring salvation and judgment to completion. So that's kind of the statement of faith. New Way Ministries, very, very orthodox. I'm very orthodox, so I very much enjoy it when other people are equally very orthodox. Here's what Larry Krebs says about himself, however, and I think this is why I think I like the man, I like his style, and I feel that there is something genuine about him, because more than anything else, being genuine is really important here. Quoting from his, uh, his blurb, his bio, on the website, In graduate school, I made a decision to give up Christianity. That lasted about two years. I thought... I will not buy Christianity simply because it's my heritage. I decided that I would not buy anything that I didn't deeply believe. Then, of course, later, reading some of the writings, not just in the Bible, but also of people like C.S. Lewis, came to think more deeply, came to think a little bit more openly about questions, and came to decide that he did actually deeply believe, and that his Christianity was a little bit more genuine and a little bit more dangerous than just his family heritage. So from there, Lawrence Crabb Jr. has gone on to be a psychologist, an author, a seminar speaker, 
the leader of a counseling of a national counseling group. But you know what? The thing I like the most about Larry Crabb, though, is that he's willing to be dangerous. I sincerely hope that if nothing else, I have a dangerous faith. I have a faith that is capable of turning to the church and telling fellow believers where they're wrong, where they've kicked a sheep out of the flock and they don't understand the parable of the lost sheep at all, but also turning to a world and saying, you know what? It's a little bit too easy to dismiss things which we don't understand, to start off with a toolbox that only has naturalism in it and say, hey, I, if, I, if I can't see it or touch it or smell it or taste it, it's not real. Are we really that naive? So I hope that I'm genuinely standing in the crossroads, like others before me, like Larry Crabb, and saying, I challenge your belief if it is nothing more than naive, if it's nothing more than doing what mom did and what dad did and what grandma did and what grandpa did, if it's not my faith, but just a faith that I've picked up along the way from somebody else, I challenge that. But I also challenge the outright, almost thoughtless at times, rejection of faith. These are questions that have to be asked in order to be answered. Let me talk just a little bit about faith, and then I'm going to let Larry Crabb have the last word. There are four stages to faith in my mind. I don't remember where I first heard this. I'm sure it was in church. Loaned faith. Loaned faith is the idea of infant baptism, where mom and dad are going to bring their kid to church. And until their kid is old enough to either accept or reject on their own terms the uh, religious heritage that they're being given, it is being loaned in this manner. Borrowed faith. Borrowed faith has a lot to do with what we might call um, First Communion classes or uh, commitment classes. It's that notion of being somewhere in the middle to late part of grade school and um, beginning to, on your own, intentionally say, yeah, I'll try that on. That's a faith that is mine because I'm transitioning from the stage of being the person who's been loaned it by my parents to actually willfully borrowing it on my own. Sought faith. Sought faith is the path that I'd identify with in uh, late high school and college. It's the path that uh, Larry Crabb describes where he actually, uh, quote unquote, lost his faith for a while because he wasn't going to carry around the borrowed faith anymore. He was going to take the risk and take the chance to say, you know what? If there is a Holy Spirit, then he will speak to me too. And I don't necessarily have to hide behind my parents' religion. And I don't necessarily have to hide behind what I learned in confirmation class that I can take genuine risks because there is a very real God who is waiting for me on the other side. And then finally, owned. Owned faith is the ultimate step, the ultimate result of the seeking and the finding. Of course, if you seek and don't find, then you have no faith, perhaps, certainly not an owned faith. But I refer to an owned faith as an intuitive knowledge of God, and I'll have to cover that concept in a different show, start to finish. I mentioned before introducing Larry Crabb as the different drummer that I needed to kind of hit that crossroads that helps explain how I manage the intersection between what I do believe in this week's show and what I don't believe in last week's show. And I believe that Larry Crabb says it quite well in chapter 14 of his book, The Silence of Adam. It's uh, in a chapter called The Dream Restored, A Generation of Mentors. And uh, here's how he words it. Optimism in a fallen world is generally misguided. Although gloominess is not the right antidote, it still must be said that folks with a reliably cheerful outlook are often naive, and their naivete may have about it a stubborn quality that can feel more like a choice 
than an accident of temperament. In Christian circles, optimism typically is built on the idea that God's central purpose is to bless us with the kind of life we want, or to transform culture into a friendlier environment for Christians. Counselors specialize in solving our problems and relieving our pain. Christian leaders tell us that our prayers, activism, and united influence will turn our nation around and usher in a godly society. Both groups may be guilty of distracting us from the real call of God. It is our individual lives and our Christian communities that must turn around. We must learn to continue serving Christ when problems come and to draw closer to Christ in the middle of unrelieved suffering. Whatever influence we have on culture must be the product of a deep passion for God, a passion that makes us into attractively different people and keeps us struggling together in a community that is imperfectly but genuinely loving. Social crusading is so much easier than finding God. Fighting for Christian standards sometimes seems to involve a belligerence that compromises humility or an aggression that masquerades as courage. And working to overcome our personal problems requires less of us than seeking God with all our hearts. Neither social crusading nor solving our problems stirs the kind of self-awareness that lets us know that the real problem is within ourselves. These are the kinds of questions that Larry Crabb has asked. That's the reason that I think this passage from his book was placed in my path for this particular show as the closing, as the different drummer for what I believe. I believe that Christianity has become too easy and that we've replaced a genuine relationship with God with the right formula. There's a way to pray and there's a time and place for prayer, usually in school if possible and preferably in front of a graduation ceremony or a ball game. We have lost that sense of walking with God. We sing hymns about being in the garden with Jesus and having a closer walk with Jesus. But sometimes I think we don't get that walk we sing about. If as Christians, we are too busy implementing the right kind of formula and we've replaced the most important thing in the entire faith realm, relationship. I believe in relationships. That's where love comes in and stands side by side with truth and faith as part of the permanent things. I have loved, I do love, and I will love. Thanks for listening. Thank you.
Music by Kevin McLeod.